to the responsibilities of the membership of the church in or as stated in our church covenant which as I said at the beginning and remind you is biblically based and if it were not it would be worthless but the fact that it is makes it very important as it is a reminder to all of us Acts chapter 2 verse 1 states and when the day of Pentecost was fully come they were all with one accord in one place the whole concept there as we started at the beginning was they were covenanted together one accord one place that's the desire that's the goal and that is what we are to seek to maintain within the Lord's church then down at verse 42 of the second chapter we read and they continued steadfastly in the apostles doctrine and fellowship and in breaking bread and prayers And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, and did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. We're in the third paragraph now concerning the church covenant. We'll resume that today. And uh, we just remind you once again that that first paragraph, uh, by way of order or chronology, reminds us of how we got here. Second paragraph tells us what we're to do as an assembly, what our goals, motives, and conduct should be. And the third paragraph is telling us what we are to do when we are not here. So that third paragraph, let's read it. It says, We also engage to maintain family and secret devotion, to religiously educate our children, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our deportment to avoid all tattling, backbiting, and excessive anger, to abstain from the sale and use of intoxicating drinks as a beverage, and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. We got through about half of that last time. We didn't quite make it to the semicolon that says exemplary in our deportment, but we did finish up with faithful in our engagements. And so I'm going to, in this message, kind of change the semicolon in that sense because it appears to me that to be exemplary in our deportment really contains what's said what the rest of what's said in the paragraph so that's the way we're going to approach it in that respect but again the third paragraph is our pledged duty when not assembled our individual duty and we call that last time it really can be summed up in what is commonly referred to as practical Christian living or duty. And the New Testament is our reference for that. A lot to be said there. In this third paragraph and in the duty of practical Christian living, we see that by doing the things that are we are called and pledged to do makes us distinct from the world. And Jesus taught this very thing, didn't he? He said, you're not of the world. I have called you out of the world. 
The world is not you and you're not the world. I'm paraphrasing. And you are not to love the world and the world is going to hate you. And that's because of who you are and your obedience to me. So these things that we are covering distinguish us as Christians from the world. And there should be a distinctness. And as I always say, don't try to be distinct. Just be obedient. That's where the distinctness come from, okay? Now the people who try to be distinct are the fanatics. We're not called to be fanatics. We may be called fanatics by the world, but let it be because of our obedience to Christ, not because of our desire to be different. All right? Big difference there. Hope you get that. As always, if you are a follower of Christ, circumspect in the world, diligent and obedient in your conduct in life, let me tell you, you'll be plenty distinct. You won't have to worry about that. But Jesus clearly made that distinction for His people in the Sermon on the Mount when He said, You are children of light. The world is darkness. I've called you out of darkness. Light. The greatest contrast there is in all the Bible from the very beginning, light and dark. And said, you are the salt of the earth. So we are salt, we are light, we are different from the world. The world is neither light nor salt. Salt is a preservative. The world is in a state of perishing. It is rotten. It is corrupt. It is deteriorating. The only salt or preservation is the presence of God through His church, His people, and the Holy Spirit. That's the only preserving element in this whole creation. Okay? So that's what we are. So that's pretty distinct, wouldn't you say? So, as we said at the beginning of this paragraph, what we do when not assembled here is our testimony to the world. It is that light that is out there. It is that salt that is out there in the rottenness and ungodliness of the world. And again, I lay the responsibility on all of us equally that all most of the world will ever know about this church or any of the Lord's churches is what it sees in the individual members of that church. So again, great responsibility, yet a great honor. So today we look at and take up exemplary in our deportment. And in looking at that, I think the rest of the paragraph details what is meant by exemplary in our deportment. Now, deportment is not a biblical word in the sense that you will not find that if you look it up in a concordance. It's not in the Bible. However, the teaching is in the Bible very clearly. It's kind of like saying Trinity. That word's not in the Bible, but the teaching of the Trinity is throughout the Bible. So deportment is not in the Bible, but there is a word in the New Testament that is synonymous with deportment and covers everything that deportment covers or means. And that word is the word conversation. And that word appears, that particular Greek word, shows up about 15 times in the New Testament. Paul used it very often, very frequently. It was part of his teaching on practical Christian living 
or obedience to Christ. Now, there's another word also just uh, for your information. There's another word that is also translated conversation, but within the context you will readily see the two or three times it's used, it's referring to citizenship. Citizenship. But the word conversation as used in the New Testament is speaking of a person's manner, conduct, or behavior, or all of those things. So it is your manner of life, your conduct of life, your behavior in your life. Another way we could put it, to let this kind of soak in, is your overall way of living. Okay? The way you deal with life's duties and responsibilities. It's your life. How do you live it? That is your conversation. Normally when we say conversation, we're talking about verbal intercourse, speaking. But conversation is bigger than that with this Greek word. It literally covers not what we just speak, but how we act, what we do, how we react, everything in that respect. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12 really gives us, I believe, a good biblical definition of the word. As Paul wrote to Timothy and said, 1 Timothy 4 and 12, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers. In word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. So just read that, you know, in word. That is what you say, conversation. But in real conversation, it's your behavior or conduct. And then your love, your spirituality, your faith, your purity, etc. So, exemplary in deportment, right there it is. There's the verse you could put your finger on and say, well, that is scriptural because here it is in the New Testament. Now, when we talk about our conversation, we recognize the usage of the word as Paul used it many times and in the New Testament referred to two types of conversation. Our old or former conversation and our new conversation. And we clearly want to make that distinction because, again, in the church covenant, we're talking about things in our obedience to Christ that set us apart and make us distinct from the world. We don't live like we once lived. We don't act like we used to act. We don't go where we used to go, do the things we used to do, think the things we used to do, etc. The believer in Christ is a new creation in Christ. And if you're a new creation in Christ, then your conversation is totally different than the former times. All of us by degrees, depending on what degree of sin and vices we were engaged in. Perhaps what age we were saved. How much uh, we had been allowed to sin, you know. Whether we were raised in a godly family or not, you know. Whether sin had restraints or we just lived indulgently in sin. The behavior could be different degrees, but there will be a behavioral change 
when a person is saved or born again. Paul always pointed this out, it seemed like, to most churches in many of his letters. And if we reference the book of uh, Galatians, for example, let's go there. To the book of Galatians chapter 1, he spoke of some things here I want to show you. Galatians uh, chapter 1, in reference to himself, I believe he said here, uh, verse 13, For ye have heard of my conversation in the times past, in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals, in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my father, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Now, if you want to see a distinction and a radical behavioral change, there it is. The very thing and persons and institution that he hated with a terrible passion in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, you almost might say, on the Damascus Road, and within a few days he had a passion for instead of against. And while he was persecuting and put to death people who preach Christ, he became one of the greatest preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you say, well, that was him. There's not that dramatic. Oh, yes, there is. <laughs> it don't matter. You may not have been as evil as him. You may have been more evil. But whatever the degree is, when God saved you, you changed. Your attitude changed. Your appetite changed. Your desire changed. Your want-tos changed. And the things you once loved, now you detest. And the things you once hated, now you loved. And that's a sure way of knowing you're a child of God. Because Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, uh, chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. I'd say that's quite a change, wouldn't you? As much change as a dead corpse to a living corpse. Verse 2, Wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, in the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And here's our word. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past. In what? Lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others, but a new creation in Christ ceases from that and takes a whole new behavior. Chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 22. That you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man which is a corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And I'm not going to go through and read all this, but you could read through the end of the chapter, and there is do's and don'ts, and they are behavioral changes. I'll just kind of point them out a little bit here. Look at the mountaintops. Verse 25, put away lying. That was the former behavior. That's not acceptable behavior or desirous of 
the Christian. Speaking the truth with his neighbor is not the normal behavior of sinners. Lying is. But it is the desire of the person that has been born again and is a child of God. Be ye angry, sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Uh, verse 28, let him that stole steal no more. That's a behavioral change, wouldn't you say? Let him labor working with his hands a thing which is good that he can give to others. Instead of a taker, he becomes a giver. Huge behavioral change. Just as big as Saul himself. No corrupt communication out of your mouth, but that which is edifying, grace to the hearers. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Let bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forsaken you. The doctrine that says you can be saved with no behavioral change is a doctrine from hell and it's damnable and it's not the Bible. It's untrue. And anybody that preaches such a doctrine is not called of God. I'll go on record to say that. Paul, Christ, and the apostles and those through the ages who have preached the doctrines of Christ and the apostle have preached this very thing and I'm glad to be a part of them that when you are a new creation in Christ, you are just that. Things change. In fact, everything changes. Or everything is affected by that change. You put off things and you put on things. And sadly, the reason there is not a lot of change in a lot of quote-unquote Christians is because there's never been a spiritual change. Therefore, the behavior doesn't change. The behavior only changes when the person has been born again. And that should be very distinct to the person and to those who observe the person. Did people notice a difference in Saul? What do you think? People who changed in the New Testament were born again. Do you think people noticed a change in Zacchaeus? when instead of embezzling and taking money from people, he went back and started giving money to them? You think people know? That's what we're talking about. So that's what conversation is. And as believers in Christ, we are not what we were. And as the saying goes, we are not yet what we're going to be. But we're working our way toward it, and it will be complete in glorification. The next thing says, and this is concerning our deportment, I believe, is to avoid tattling. Now that sounds like something we tell our kids at the first and second grade level, doesn't it? But as adults, we need to be told that and reminded that also because that is part of the old behavior. And we're to put it off. Tattling. What does that mean? Well, the word in the Greek here literally means uh, foolish talking, silly talking, trifling, trifling talking, uh, really just babbling. Saying stuff that's not worth saying. Saying stuff that's not worth listening to. And the opposite of this would be what I would call edifying. There's no edification in tattling. And tattling is simply talking pretty much what we would call today gossip. This is the stuff the tabloids survive on, okay? It's just tattling. Telling things about other people may be true, may be not true. 
but are of no particular interest to anybody who would really care. If all people care about is what's going on in the lives of other people, let me tell you, that's just about as shallow as you can get. If your life is consumed with what's going on in other people's lives, you're missing the mark by a long shot. Because we are called to focus internally before we're called to focus externally, aren't we? I mean, judge not lest you should be judged by the, you know, and so forth. I mean, we'd be looking at ourselves rather than outward. But this word actually does show up in the Bible. It's in First Timothy if you want to turn there. And it won't take us very long to cover what it says about it. In First Timothy chapter 5, verse 11, it says concerning widows, the younger widows refuse, for when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry having damnation because they've cast off their first faith and withal they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house and not only idle but tattlers, also busybodies speaking things which they ought not. I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. And I am not going to stand here before you today and say that this only applies to women when he's talking about tattlers. That's not what we're gleaning from this context. But it does say this would be a common characteristic among young women or widows who were unmarried, which is, by the way, an unnatural state. Okay? It is an exceptional state not to marry. These individuals were widows. So they did not have husbands. That's an unnatural state. The natural state for men and women is to marry. That's the natural thing. And so the danger then, and the natural thing that would be common to happening one with this idleness, and the idleness is because there's no husband, there's no home, there's no family. Idleness is the devil's playground. I don't matter if you're a man or a woman but wandering about from house to house. If they were married, they'd be staying at their own house. I mean, that's the context here. Not idle, but would be working to provide and fulfill the functions of a wife and a mother and etc., a Christian woman. But tattlers and busybodies. So this is just going about talking about people and about things of no significance, of no edification whatsoever. Just literally gossipers in that. So there's a lot of things there associated with tattling, as you can see, not just tattling itself. And the next thing it says, and this is similar and kind of goes on the heels of this, is to avoid backbiting. Now, that word's got some teeth in it, don't it? Backbiting. And when I think about that, I, I think about a, an animal, a dog. A dog that will not, some dogs are vicious enough, they'll attack you from the front. But a lot of them are cowards. And they'll only snip at you when they can do it from behind and get away with it. Which is a cowardly act. Now again, I'll just be honest with you. You'd have more respect for a dog <laughs> that would attack you from the front. He ain't afraid of you whatsoever. But one that sneak around, sneak up behind you and bite you from the back. <laughs> no respect, right? 
So likewise, anybody that would not say something to your face, but would sneak around behind your back and say things. And I'm going to be honest with you right here. This is the plague of our generation of technology and phones. Emails and everything else. Is people can be the cowards that they really are. They can put that stuff out there without looking somebody in the eye. And that's sad. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a phone. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying technology is bad. But I'm saying everything, every convenience we have is something that can be abused and it is highly abused in what's called modern social media. Because people can talk like a big dog even though they're a little dog. And it all involves the tongue and putting it out there. And that's what we're talking about right here. More backbiting can be done, you see, while sitting in the convenience of your living room and you never have to look at the person in the eye. It don't matter if you'll ever meet them, if they're down the street, if they're next door, if they're the other side of the planet. You can do it. It's pathetic. It's a wrong. It shouldn't be done on any degree, but that just allows people to do it on a universal degree in that respect. And I would simply say to you, if there's something that you're not willing to look somebody in the eye and say, then why say it behind their back or to somebody else? You know? I mean, grow up. It's childish. The Bible has a lot to say about this, both Old Testament and New Testament. So let's get our instruction from the Bible, shall we? In the book of Psalms, chapter 15 and verse 3. We'll go there first. Psalms 15 and 3 says, and I want you to notice the context, verse 1, Who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly worketh righteousness, speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. And it goes on to say some other things there also. So what's it saying? It's saying Christian people shouldn't be backbiters. Righteous people, people that are going to heaven, they don't indulge in this kind of activity as a habit. Okay? It's looked down upon in that respect. Then over in the book of Proverbs, chapter 25, and verse 23, we read, The north wind driveth away rain, so doth an angry countenance a backbiting tongue. Interesting verse. Contrast, as in many of the Proverbs, about a uh, weather or meteorological thing, about how when the wind blows out of the north it drives away rain, because rain commonly comes from clouds and things from the south, which is the normal thing. And an angry counts a backbiting tongue. What's that talking about? Well, we've probably had this done to us if we had parents of any degree, and if we were parents of any degree, Godly, we've done it to our children. That when one of the children comes up and starts telling off on the other child, we frown upon them, right? And that's what the countenance is. It's the appearance of the face. And so you frown upon that. That's what this is saying. And we are to frown upon backbiting in order to drive it away. Don't turn an ear to it. Don't bend over backwards to listen to it, you know. 
Don't hang around people that do it. This is like somebody telling a dirty joke. You're going to stand there, smile, laugh, and grin? I mean, no. No. We have an angry or an upset countenance about it in order to defer or keep people from indulging in that. It's a, it's a countenance of non-approval. So this is not approved of in that sense. There's another scripture in uh, Psalms 101. There in verse 5, quickly, we're close by, says, Whoso privately slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath a high look and a proud heart will I not suffer. And that's what a lot of this backbiting is, is one person is backbiting the other. It makes them feel good to demean somebody else in that regard. And it is the same teaching in the New Testament. Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and in verse 20, these words, wrong verse. Got the wrong verse there. I'm sorry, I don't know which one it is. We'll go to Romans 1 and 30 where he says one there also. Uh, it may have been, I may have been 1 Corinthians. Let me look in 1 Corinthians 2 right quick first before we leave. No. All right, uh, Romans 1 and 30. And here, we'll be talking about this for long, Lord willing, but it's talking about the way of the ungodly. And the natural characteristic is, verse 29, to be filled with unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetous, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, and haters of God. Look at where that appears. Look at all that stuff. It is surrounded by despiteful, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. So this is not the characteristic of Christian people. And Paul in the scripture that I couldn't find accused the church at Corinth of causing strife, backbiting, uh, one with another, and then their little groups in that regard. Now, both of these, avoid tattling and avoiding backbiting, are both evidences of what? James labels it in James 1 and 26 of the unbridled tongue. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this, religion's, this man's religion is vain. And then in the third chapter, he goes into detail, about 10, 11 verses there, Verse 2 uh, talks about bridling the whole body. Verse 3, put bits in the horse's mouth to turn them about. The analogy in verse 4 about a rudder on a very big ship is able to turn it about. And then in verse 5, he lands on the subject. Even so the tongue is a little member, boasteth great things. How great a matter a little fire kindleth. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members. It defileth the whole body, etc., etc. So again, the tattling as well as the <clears throat> backbiting is done by the tongue. And it is the responsibility of God's people to bite your tongue, bridle your tongue, and not engage in either of these things. The next thing we see is an avoiding again. Three of them here we're dealing with. Avoid excessive anger. Now, anger is a common human emotion. 
The sad thing about anger is it is a stepping stone to sin. When a person is angry, it is very difficult not to sin. Because anger many times is rooted in our own selfishness. That's where it springs up. In other words, there is such a thing as justified anger. Okay? A wrong is a wrong. And if somebody does you a wrong, it's probably going to trigger an anger impulse. Now, that part is natural. What we do with the anger is where the trouble comes in. If we revile back when revile, then we sin. If we retaliate back when we've been wrong, then it is sin, you see. But there is such a thing, and sometimes preachers talk about it, righteous indignation, which is justified anger in that respect. But uh, I can't go over record and tell you that I can keep my anger in a justifiable place. We fight. I fight to keep that anger from causing me to sin. That's the danger of it. It's kind of like that tongue again. It starts out a little thing, but it can get a big thing real quick in that respect. And just to show you that it is a justified thing, let me, uh, uh, let me read you a scripture concerning the Lord. And of course, the Lord didn't have the sin nature we have, but it shows that there is such a thing as a holy or justified anger. In chapter 3 and verse 5, here he's before the Jews and he's about to heal a man and they're just standing like a bunch of pack of coyotes, you know, to jump all over him as soon as he does something. It says in 3 and 5, And when he had looked around about on them with anger. Why was he angry? Jesus couldn't sin, didn't sin. So this was righteous indignation. This was justified anger. And it tells us why being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. He said to the man, stretch forth your hand and stretch it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. So there is a holy or righteous anger, you know, in other words. But we're not the Lord. We are to follow His example, but it is not an easy task at all. Because again, I have been wronged, and you notice there's the first problem in why we see an I. You know, it's a selfish thing. They shouldn't have done it. Right. That's true. But God will deal with it. You know, vengeance is not ours, right? You know, I mean, we have civil ways to deal with wrongs. I'm not negating that, that you just lay down and be a pacifist and just let people roll over. No, we have laws and things whereby you can deal with wrongs. But to get angry and take things into your own hands... No, no. Excessive anger. We know what excessive anger leads to. There's all kinds of scriptures, if you're familiar with Solomon's writings and the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes about anger. We don't have time to go to all of those things, but I will touch on a couple in the New Testament here just to remind us. Uh, we, and again, who of us needs to be instructed on this? We've all been there, have we not? I mean, we know the mistakes we've made. We know the harm we have caused by excessive or out-of-control anger. And we're all face that temptation to various degrees. It's not something we want to do. It happens. There are regrets. And you can't undo it. 
in that respect. You go through the Bible. You don't have to, but you go through the Bible and see what kind of trouble people got into by being angry. And again, we can look at our own life. But let's look at a scripture too before we go on on this. In Ephesians 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and about verse 26, we read these words. Paul spoke specifically. I think we uh, <clears throat> put on the new... Uh, rather, let's see here. Four, is that the one I want to read? 26, I'm sorry. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. And again, the being angry is something that's going to happen. But don't sin when it occurs. Okay, like the example of our Lord Himself. And then again, anger is a molehill that can become a mountain. If things are not repented of and reconciled shortly, they get bigger and harder to deal with. This is why it says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. You know, get it under control and get it taken care of as quickly as possible. Okay, suck up your pride and say you're sorry. Admit you're wrong. Repent to the Lord. Repent to the person. We all have to do that. Yeah, it's eating crow. But if you're a child of God, you want to get it right. You want to be right before God. So, time is not on your side. That's the devil's playground again, is to prolong repentance or reconciliation. And then uh, down to verse... 31, again, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. So again, a putting away in that sense. All right, then the next one, we have an abstain rather than an avoid. And this says, abstain from the sale and use of intoxicating drinks as a beverage. Now, very difficult subject for a lot of people to reconcile here on what the Bible says about this. And I'm going to be, you've heard me preach on this or teach this before, so I'm going to be very brief as possible as I can on this. But the Bible's references to intoxication or drinks as a beverage comes in the form of the mentioning of the word wine throughout. Because it is the most basic, the most natural derivative of that which is fermented and intoxicated. You don't have to make it. It will do it all by itself if you just leave it alone like it is. You know, you don't have to mix and, and uh, mix things up and so forth. So the Bible references on this subject are mostly in the use of wine. The Bible is very plain. The Bible does not condemn the use of that which is or can be intoxicated, it does condemn the abuse in that sense. The abuse being drunkenness, which is synonymous with intoxication. You might remember that uh, numerous things we could talk about here, but Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.23, I believe it was, uh, use a little wine for thy stomach's sake. It's good for medicinal purposes in that respect. So it is not totally condemned as far as the use of, but intoxication and drunkenness of any kind is severely condemned throughout the Bible. 
Numerous scriptures there on that. In fact, if you're still in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, Paul just bluntly says here, making a comparison, be not drunk with wine where is in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, don't be intoxicated with alcoholic beverages or things of the world, but be filled up with or intoxicated with, in that sense, the Holy Spirit. And that's a bad usage when you're saying intoxicated with the Holy Spirit because a person that is intoxicated is not in their right mind. And if you're filled with the Spirit, you certainly are in your right mind. But that's exactly what drunkenness or intoxication is. It is not being yourself or not being of a sound mind. The word sober, which we're encouraged to be, whether it's referring to intoxication or not, we're to be sober-minded, that means of a sound mind. And what does the alcohol do or anything else? If it makes you of an unsound mind, then again, it don't matter the source, and it don't matter the degree of intoxication. It is sin. It becomes sin in that regard. There are, the Bible is full of numerous prohibitions, warnings, dangers and examples about drunkenness and intoxication and they're all negative. There's nothing positive anywhere. Noah, that great preacher of righteousness, after the flood got drunk and got naked. And drunkenness many times leads to other consequential sins. It's a fact. Lot's daughters got him drunk so they could commit incest with him. And on and on we could go. There's just nothing good you can say about it. No wonder the Bible has to say so much against it. But it is negative, and it is the characteristic of the ungodly and the unbelieving. I mean, the Bible proves that beyond any shadow of a doubt. Uh, scripture here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 Verse 19 and 20 reminds us, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So when there is an intoxication or a drunkenness of any kind, again, we are contaminating or corrupting the very place where the Holy Spirit dwells, and we are not glorifying God in our body. We are succumbing to selfishness and the things of the world. So drunkenness and intoxication would cover all forms of intoxication, no matter what the source. Just because it says wine doesn't mean it covers everything else. In fact, let me show you this quickly. Maybe we can wrap this up here today. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 20. Galatians 5 and verse 20, Paul says, And the fruit of the Spirit is mentioned in verse 22 on. The works of the flesh are mentioned in verse 19, 20, and 21. And in verse 20, we have idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, and heresies. Say, what's that verse got to do with about wine and drunkenness? The word witchcraft there. That word witchcraft 
is a word that in the Greek is pharmakeia, which is where we get our word pharmacy. And it literally refers to what our word pharmacy does, the use or distribution or administration of drugs, even poison. Okay, it could even be that. It's translated witchcraft here. It shows up three other times, all of them in Revelation. In Revelation 9.21, it's translated sorceries. I'm going to read these real quickly. Revelation 9.21, it says, uh, Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor their fornication, nor their thefts. Again, look at the associated sins where that occurs. Sorceries. I'm going to read them and then I'll comment. 18 and 23, And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee, and the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth. For thy sorceries were all nations deceived. And again, witchcraft, and literally that word carries the connotation there, definition of intoxications, but it would be intoxications of idolatry, falsehood, things like that. And then finally, Revelation 21 and 8 says, But the fearful, unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So why are these words translated sorceries and witchcraft? And they come from the word pharmakeia about the distribution of drugs or things that intoxicate? Because this was the normal pagan idolatrous custom of witchcraft and sorcery was literally, and it's not funny, we talk about witches and magic potions and all this, that is exactly what the word means. This is where the, whatever the potion was, whatever the mixture was, it was drug-induced and it intoxicated. Under sorcery, witchcraft, spells, magic, enchantments, devilish stuff. This, this is where it all comes from. I mean, you want to know the root of drugs? That's where it comes from. That's it. Right there. And so again, it doesn't matter the people, the civilization, the plant, the product, the chemicals, the mixture, and today we're living in an age where what are they going to come up with next? These chemical mixtures. They're all doing the same thing. So, again, you say, well, the Bible doesn't say... Well, how in the world would the Bible say anything about it back there when we didn't have fentanyl? Wine was the common thing that everybody understood that intoxicated. And the other stuff was in the area of witchcraft, magic arts, you know, devising and coming up and mixing stuff. That did. So that's, there's the danger of it. And that's how that word is used in Galatians 5 and 20. We're going to have to wrap up for today, and I'm not going to get to another point, but I'm going to mention it as we close today. Why is this in our church covenant? Why does it say this? The use and sale of intoxicating drinks as a beverage in that. Number one, it is a sin to be intoxicated. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Whatever you put in there that makes you not of a sound mind, 
and affects your body, it is sin. Now, I'll pick it up here next time, but I am going to say this. Over the years, I've seen people say, okay, well, the Bible doesn't say that I can't do it, so how much can I do it? Usually, everybody that asks those type of questions are looking to push the limit or push the envelope. They're not looking to follow the Lord or abstain from sin. They want to know how much they can get away with. All right? And there is a second sin associated with it, and that is the sin of losing your testimony by indulging in it. Well, the Bible says it's not the use of the That's absolutely right. And the Bible, as Paul said, all things may be lawful. Things that may be lawful are not always expedient. Noah got drunk, got naked, and what kind of testimony did he have for his sons? I mean, and for us today. Well, there's a lot more to be said, but we're going to have to call it quits for there today. We'll give you more to think about and try to cover the rest of the paragraph next time.